His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their innermost thoughts. Thank you, Francis. And if you have your Bible in one turn to Luke chapter 1, we are continuing our Advent series through Mary's song, or commonly referred to as the Magnificat. Um, Paul and I conferred, and we decided that everything is downhill from last week. That the uh, sermon, uh, the message that uh, Emily brought with the reference to the Lord of the Rings was, was really, really good. And we're not sure that we can um, follow that up very well. But we're going to try. So uh, uh, you keep that in mind as we carry on through. And so maybe from week to week, um, while we're taking bits of the song up uh, to, uh, each week, you'll read that song every week in, in its fullness so that uh, we can kind of keep the themes together. Would you pray with me? Lord God, you took up arms to prove your goodness when we thought our arms sufficient to hold us up. Scatter our pride with the mercy that triumphs. And all God's people say, I'm moving along, you see. I know that your stomachs will be growling in short order. So Eric McLaughlin tells on himself, he, he writes a, a fairly long piece in a recent uh, um, issue of Christianity Today. And when he tells on himself, he, he actually tells a little bit on us. You see, he had spent a few days in meetings working through language and cultural barriers so that he could secure the licensing and accreditation for a medical school in Burundi, a country in East Africa. Exhausted from all that was required of him during those days of meetings, he knew that his three-hour trip home needed to start early enough that he didn't arrive at home in the dark. I don't know if you've ever traveled in areas like that, rural areas, but it's not like driving down I-40. The roads are narrow, and the um, the, the way the grade runs off the shoulder is very steep, can be treacherous, and you can sometimes meet unseemly folks along the way wanting to help you out with your money. He wasn't long into his trip after his series of meetings, uh, thinking he was making good time when he happened upon a wreck. There and uh, in, in the scene, there's obviously a, a motorcycle involved. I don't remember if there was a car involved, but there was obviously a motorcycle involved. And there was a fellow laying on the ground, and he watched as, as some people grabbed a leg and an arm, and they drug him off onto the gravel shoulder. And then he saw a woman there who had an open wound in her leg, and, and she was screaming, not sure that she was going to live. Now, Eric saw this, and all that was on his mind was getting home. He knew the three-hour drive yet ahead uh, awaited him, and all he was ready to do emotionally and physically 
was go home. But after having that internal dialogue with himself, after realizing that he, as a missionary in a country in East Africa, of all people, should remember the parable of the Good Samaritan. And then, that he was a medical doctor and had just sat through meetings for accreditation of a medical school, what else was he to do? Exhausted? Emotionally, physically, he stopped. He tells that he was hoping that somewhere along the way, an emergency vehicle would happen on it. You know, just yesterday, I was was heading across the river, and there at, at Silver City and Highway 4, cars. There had been an accident, no emergency vehicles yet, little girl was being consoled, probably uh, reassuring her that she was going to be okay. When I returned, there was one car in the center median and two police cars. I know that it didn't take long, likely, for those to respond to that accident when called upon. And certainly, Eric had the idea that here's an accident, someone's contacted authorities, surely an emergency vehicle will arrive soon, and I can be back on the road. Well, time passed as he assessed the condition of the man unconscious. He found him yet breathing, so he felt like he probably would be okay if they could get him to a hospital. And he assessed the woman's wound. It wasn't life-threatening, but certainly painful. And he realized that no one was coming. But he knew that in order for these two to survive, he was going to have to find a way to get them to the hospital. So he decided after a conversation with the, the woman's relative that he thought he might could get one of them in his car. So he put the seats down in his little RAV4, opened up the back hatch, and they were amazingly able to get both of them into the car. And off he went, back the direction from which he came, knowing that he still had three-hour drive ahead of him, and now it would be dark negotiating those narrow roads with the steep inclines off the shoulder. He made his way to the hospital that they suggested he take them to. It was the, the better hospital of those that were available, and they arrived there. Someone came out to meet the car and talk to them and and determine what was needed. And it was realized by the hospital staff that the man and the woman didn't have the financial means to provide for their own care, and they were turned away. So Eric took them to the next hospital. They're met by someone from hospital staff out to the car to meet them, and they determined they could help. One by one, on probably the same stretcher, they came and got the man and took him in, and came and got the woman and took her in, and they were going to be taken care of. And, and Eric, Eric knew the rest of the parable. He, he knew the rest of the parable of the Good Samaritan So he took some money out of his pocket and he talked to the woman's relative and he he said, here, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take half this money and you take care of the needs of the man and you take the other half and you take the care of the needs of your relative, the woman. And he hoped. And And then he headed home. 
near the end of his article, he was, he was reflecting on the incident. And, and, and he didn't tell the story so that you and I would come away thinking, wow, what a hero he is. How faithful he was to live out the parable of the Good Samaritan. He actually was admitting that the struggle is real. That when times come for us, you, me, him, to help as a good Samaritan, it's never when we're poised and ready. It's never when we're well-rested and we're emotionally strong and and we're confident that we, we can face that challenge and whatever else lies ahead. It's when we are least prepared, least ready trying to take some solace in his internal struggle and battle over whether or not he should stop, he concluded by realizing that, one, he couldn't do any different. For he realized that those that were in the back of his RAV4 on the way to the hospital that he had found injured on the road were Jesus. When you've done it to the least of these, you've done it unto me, he thought. And then and then he realized, he he realized, and then there I was, representing the strong arm of the Lord, able to fit these two wounded in the back of my car able to see that they got the help that they needed and then provide the money available to see to their care. That was also Jesus at work. Um, he, he, He put it not in these exact words, but it made sense to me. He was describing Jesus helping Jesus. It is a circular move to be sure, but it is, if we hear the parable in Matthew 25, it is the recognition that those who are in the condition of these two victims of this accident, they are the very ones who are homeless, poor, naked, and wounded. That Jesus says, you did to me. And then it was a realization that the Good Samaritan is not a story for our inspiration. It's not a story so that we can be compelled to pull off by the side of the road when we see victims of an accident. The parable is telling us what Jesus has always been doing. The parable is Jesus telling a story about himself. Jesus is the Good Samaritan. There there isn't a time when Jesus hasn't shown up ready to take care of the wounded by the side of the road for whatever means caused it. So there is that missionary's discovery that he had actually been an instrument to express Jesus helping Jesus. When Mary sings her song and she draws attention to the arm of the Lord, she includes the idea that what is displayed is God's mercy. God's mercy, God's mercy triumphs. 
If Mary's song is still a song of revolution, where she is reminding us that through the weak things of the world, God is strong for those who are discarded and not given much attention and not considered terribly valuable. If God works through that kind of person, that person in that situation, in that condition, if that's the case, then surely we can understand that mercy always wins. That is, God's mercy always wins. This idea of drawing attention to the arm of the Lord in Eric's story is, is one way to illustrate what Mary describes when she talks about the arm of the Lord that brings salvation. But this is an echo. The, the, the Old Testament scriptures are, are full of references to God's activity in the world and often described as the arm or hand of the Lord. So, for instance, after God defeated Pharaoh's army, remember that's how the story is? The story isn't that Moses defeated Pharaoh's army, right? It's God defeated Pharaoh's army. And when God defeated Pharaoh's army, Moses sang and he said this, Thy right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, thy right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Miriam, just after Moses' long song, takes up a timbrel and leads the women out. And she leads out saying, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Deborah Barak. They sing of the Lord's deliverance from their enemies. Lord, when thou didst go forth from Seir, when thou didst march from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yea, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord on Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. You see, we weren't just making it up with the children. When they recognized great things happened that brought them peace from their enemies, they sang songs. Asaph, the leading songwriter for King David, that sometimes in your reading of the Psalms, the book of Psalms, will say a song of Asaph. Asaph was the lead lyricist, the lead songwriter in da among David's uh, lyrical court. After the Ark of the Covenant was set in its place, the represented representation of God's presence, Asaph penned these words, O oh, give thanks to the Lord, call on his name, make known his deeds among the people. He's making it plural, not just that the rider is tossed in his horse into the sea, not just, not just that Barak and Deborah became the leaders that set Israel free during the period of the judges all the deeds. So it's conjuring all the things. And then, and then Mary's song, is, as, as was mentioned last week, was so much like Hannah's. She broke out into song after she took Samuel to the house of the Lord in Shiloh. She described God's answered prayer as her salvation. My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in thy salvation. Now, now let me be careful here to make the point. Hannah didn't say that she lipped off at her enemies. My mouth derides my enemies. What derided the enemies was her song. 
her confidence and recognition that God had answered her prayers, gave her a child. She was in turn giving that child to the Lord, knowing exactly what would result from the service of her own son. The very lyrics are the, are the words that derided the enemies. For the enemies were proud enough to think that they were the ones victorious. And then in captivity, the word of the Lord comes to the people from Isaiah And in Isaiah 58, God gives Isaiah these words to give to the people. Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness? To undo the thongs of the yoke? To let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh? The Lord expected Israel to do what they had witnessed him do for them. They knew what it was to be the homeless poor, to be the naked and the unfed. They knew what it was. Those those actions were calling for a response from the people. They should not have to ask what to do. They should do what they had encountered at the hand of the Lord. And so when you get to Isaiah 59 verse 1, when the people are cajoled for their lack of faithfulness, Isaiah returns to say, See, the Lord's hand is not too short to save. His arm is not so short. Listen, the Advent season, the season of Advent, uh, one of my favorites, is the occasion for us to remember all that God has done. Not just a a few things, not just a couple of things, but all. It, It is an occasion to consider all that God has done. Almost 1,700 years ago, just a a couple of centuries after uh, Jesus' resurrection and ascension, uh, just almost 1,700 years ago, when Christ followers in the Roman Empire were considered outlaws and heretics, when they were neglected and from time to time very perilously living St. Athanasius wrote on the Incarnation. We've been talking a little bit about St. Athanasius in, in our Sunday Bible study class. He, he wrote this in just the early 300s. And, and if you're keeping track, uh, uh, Christianity didn't even become tolerated till the early 300s, and it wasn't considered a legal religion until I think it was 321. So all the way up until that point, anyone writing, talking, thinking about Jesus was under threat. They were considered out of their minds, terribly ignorant, and many other things beside. Athanasius wrote on the Incarnation, uh, not necessarily as a reflection for uh, the season of Advent, which developed some later. Instead, describing what it means that God became man or the word became flesh. Athanasius rooted his defense of this reality that Christians proclaimed in the corruption that was brought to humanity by death. And that that death came 
when human beings refused to believe God, to take God at his word. For God to keep his word meant he could not let corruption win. For God to keep his word, he couldn't let death win. So what Irenaeus makes the point is that this death drive that developed, in fact, that's what modern psychologists and philosophers describe we human beings as having, that we possess a death drive, that everything can be going great for us, but there's something internal to us. This is not something that you found necessarily reading the scriptures. This is what modern psychologists and philosophers describe as the death drive. Human beings, we have a death drive. We are capable of messing things up all on our own. Athanasius would say this, that what happened is that when human beings decided not to believe God, what resulted was death, and death's tools are corruption. So all of the good things God gave became things that could be corrupted. And in that, what we find out, some of the things you and I encounter as bad were good things gone wrong. That was Athanasius. Human beings living toward death, these psychologists and philosophers say. And it is ironic that in the garden, rather than choosing life by eating the fruit from the tree, we chose something altogether different. And then we tell everyone we really want to live. Ironies abound in telling our human story. To call back to Eric McLaughlin and, and the parable of the Good Samaritan, what Athanasius is describing is describing the God who is the one who enters the story of the wounded man and in, made in his image and binds up his wounds, carries him to safety, and provides him out of his own abundance. If there is anything that we could parallel what happens in the incarnation is God is showing us that he is the good Samaritan. The story isn't about what we should do. The parable is telling the story about what Jesus does. Yeah, yes, we discussed this a little bit this morning. We find in the story inspiration for our doing. But the story calls attention to what God has always been doing. Always been about. It's that the incarnation, God become flesh, the word become flesh, as John describes it in John 1, is it, it is now more clear than it has ever been. In the coming of Jesus, we say it's unquestioned that God came to us wounded on the side of the road. God did that for us. God's arm, God's arm is not too short that it cannot save Surely, surely drove Athanasius to consider death as the motivation to talk about God become man. And in his words, so that we might become God. And before you think that I've changed my theological persuasion and think that you and I are going to be gods ruling our own planets. I see that only a few of you get that. What, what Athanasius meant would be was that that we might become God that is taken up into life with God, which is Paul's words in Colossians 3. Like the wounded figure on the side of the road, God himself doesn't pass humanity by. 
Instead, having created human beings in his image, he could not leave us to corruption and death. He picked us up and still picks us up. And he put an end to death with his own death. This is actually Mary's song. This is what Mary is doing in her song. And we cannot think that this was somehow a plan B. God has always been for us. That is, before we find we needed it, God has always been for us. If we read the narrative in Genesis, God provided all that we needed from the beginning. It wasn't an alteration, but for God to be true, he had to keep his commitment. If he's going to give us all that we need, then even when we spurn it, he continues to give us what we need. That, my friends, is what we call faithfulness. When we understand that the experiences of life are a result of the corruption brought by death, we actually know that more than we admit. Or maybe it's not that we don't admit it, it's that we don't recognize it. For you and I gathered together, we did in our class this morning, and we said, who could we pray for? And when we pray the words, God be with we are recognizing the corruption that comes. It comes to our bodies. It comes to our experiences of life. It comes to all of our circumstances. We recognize that. And so when we say God be with, we recognize that there is one who can take care of whatever corruption is at hand. God defeats death and ends the reign of corruption. But what we look for at this Advent season is not his first coming, but his second, when he makes that final. That is... The finality of his victory will be realized in what we call time. We, we want it to happen in time. We would like it to happen in our time. No? Yes, we would like it to happen in our time. But the promise is it will happen in time. So what we find here in Mary's song, if it's still going to be a song of revolution, is we've got to keep telling the stories that Mary tells here are the deeds God has done, not the least of which is what God did with her, through her, and in her. God made space for himself in the world, in the womb of a woman, so that he might make space in your life and mine to defeat the corruption and death that we drive for. These past events, talking about celebrating these deeds, these past events, as we call them, sometimes we, we think, man, that happened so long ago. Well, that probably is because we're not paying attention to what's still going on. So maybe we would ask God to give us his eyes that we might see what he's always doing, even if we have to refer to past events. Remember, past events give us a promise of what's to come in the future in, in, in a final movement of God so that it gives us hope in the present. These all are tied together. They're of the same thing. Calling attention to the deeds of the Lord sparks awe and wonder. What in this translation translates fear. Now some of us know what it was to grow up in church fearful. We, were, we heard the stories of the pastor who told his own son to go spit out his gum right in the middle of a sermon. You don't want to be called down by the preacher in the middle of a sermon. Trust me. And not that I'm thinking about it, by the way. But this word fear has been for many of us this, this 
this attempt to try to figure out what exactly is described here. And most today, most modern translations, modern translators would tell us that it is all and wonder. So when Mary sings, His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation, is for His mercy is for those who are in awe and wonder at what He has done from generation to generation. Awe and wonder. Awe is on the cutting edge of emotional research, said Judith Moskowitz a professor of medical social sciences at Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine in Chicago. There you have it. Awe is on the cutting edge of emotion. It was interesting to read Hope Reese's piece, who wrote for the, excuse me, the New York Times uh, under the article titled, How a Bit of Awe Can Improve Your Health. Experts say wonder is an essential human emotion and a salve to turbulent times. She's summarizing what uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Kasher Keltner uh, wrote about in his book titled, Awe, the New Science of Everyday Wonder and How It Can Transform Your Life. Keltner says this, Awe is the feeling of being in the presence of something vast that transcends your understanding of the world. Keltner goes on to describe the ways we might both experience and develop habits of all. That, that is what, after all, they're telling in this book. That's what his motive is to say, the thing that can help you along in life, the thing that can, that can be a salve to your turbulent times, the, the thing that will help you negotiate the difficulties of life is developing a habit of awe and wonder. Go outside. Breathe in the air. Look at the world around you. Even take in the moral beauty of your neighbor. Much of it, when I was reading the article, sounded a lot like the old adage, why don't you stop and smell the roses? Sometimes the very thing we need is right under our nose. Except... Except the difference that was described in this book of developing a habit of awe was, was, was something that it, it really is appealing. For example, I won't ever forget driving down Highway 160 in Colorado for the very first time. I, I won't ever forget it. I won't ever forget being a flatlander in flyover country watching those tall evergreens rise taller than anything I'd ever seen. I'll never forget the depth of the green that I saw, the amazing shades just in one hillside. I'll never forget stepping foot in the cold Rio Grande. I'll never forget learning to fly fish and standing in the middle, not caring one bit whether or not I caught something. It was just enough to see the mountains and the blue sky and enjoy all wonder. And I could start singing one of those songs I learned as a kid about God's creation and all the wonders of the beauty of the earth. For the beauty of the earth. Some of you may remember that song. But the one thing 
The one thing those visions can't do is change us. No, if it were up to the scenery of a mountain range to alter your turbulent times, we would all already live there. If the beauty of the ocean is something that captures your imagination and white sandy beaches, if they would make life so easy to tolerate, we would all live there. Those objects have no power in themselves to change your turbulence or alter your conditions. Maybe change your state of mind for a bit. The deeds that the scripture writers talk about are the things that do change our appeal to someone who does act in the world. And certainly, I think God can use those things to maybe grab our attention. But in the end, we don't hopefully fool ourselves into thinking that now that I've escaped to the southern slope, man, my life is now always going to be better. No, it doesn't happen that way. But for the songwriter, the awe that comes to us, the salve that comes in turbulent times, taking in what we see around us is taking in what God has done for us in Jesus. That that's the awe. That's the awe. That it wasn't dependent upon a missionary who had an internal battle over whether or not to stop because you were lying unconscious with an open wounded broken leg. We are not dependent on the possibility that someone could drive by. That the story of the scriptures, the reason we celebrate Advent is precisely because God didn't have to think about stopping. It was always in his nature to do so for you and for me. Always. That's the season of That's what can change our understanding of the future of the world and our own present. Because there is a promise. There is a promise that God will finally and completely do for us what he said. No matter whether we believe him or not. Would you pray with me?